Would you go in your Bible to Psalm 73? Psalm 73 tonight. Vamos a ir esta noche al Salmo 73. And we're going to begin reading at verse 13. Vamos a leer comenzando con el verso 13. Last Sunday that we were together, Sunday night, we shared on this Psalm number one, and I shared on the subject, it pays to serve the Lord. Uh, hace unas semanas, el último domingo que estuvimos juntos, en domingo en la noche, compartí sobre el Salmo 1, hablando sobre, uh, vale la pena servir al Señor. And tonight I want to continue along those lines. But I want to share with you from verse 17 in particular, uh, beginning though at verse 13 for our context. The Bible says, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered, to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until, say until, until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant, and I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. Your counsel will guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your word, which is living and powerful, and which is able to speak to the issues of our life. I pray that you would anoint my lips of clay to preach the word of the living God, and that you would anoint the hearing of this congregation, that they might hear the word and put it to use and practice in their life. We ask that in Jesus' name, and the church said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated this evening. I want to use as a subject using the borrowing the, the phrase here in verse 17 until I came into the sanctuary of God. Quiero usar por tema esta noche usando la frase de la, del salmista aquí hasta que yo entré a la casa de Jehová. In my life I have had the opportunity to travel quite uh, quite a bit and uh, I think I've been to about 30 or more countries. En mi vida he tenido el privilegio de poder viajar uh, bastante. Creo que he viajado a más de 30 naciones. I know that I have preached on six continents. Uh, he predicado en seis continentes. I have not preached in Antarctica. Uh, the Lord has not yet called me to preach to the polar bears, uh, but someday maybe. Uh, no he predicado en Antártica. No, no creo que el Señor me ha llamado a predicarle a los osos todavía, pero... Si algún día me llama, para allá voy. Uh, and what I'm mentioning, the, the reason I'm mentioning this is because along the way I have had the opportunity 
to visit many houses of worship. Uh, durante esos viajes yo he tenido la oportunidad de visitar muchas casas de oración. And some of them, uh, most of the ones I have visited were Christian houses of worship. Sin duda, la mayoría de esos lugares que he visitado fueron casas de oración cristianas. But there have been occasions when I have seen uh, and visited houses of worship that were not Christian as part of tours or part of the, uh, the different historical um, event of a, of a location I have had the opportunity to visit. And uh, when I was in China, we visited, uh, as uh, in, in China, we were, we were smuggling in Gospels. So uh, when we were there, at night we would distribute the Gospel in, uh, in uh, the city, leaving a Gospel track in every mailbox and every bike basket we could. But during the day, to disguise our purpose, we were tourists. And on one occasion, they told us, you should go up to the top of the mountain. There is a, a sacred shrine up there. And so we were tourists, of course. So we went up to the top of that mountain to find this sacred shrine. It was quite a hike to get up there. And it was um, a long, beautiful trip up to the top of this mountain. We finally arrived, and there was a small temple to Buddha. And when we arrived at the door of that temple, I did what John did in the Gospels when he went to the tomb of Jesus. He, the Bible said he didn't go in. He just kind of peeked in like that. I didn't go in. I just peeked in. And I was uh, interested in what I saw. There were three statues in that place. The first one was a tall, uh, skinny Buddha. They're, they uh, have a different concept, I think, than what we see in our Chinese restaurants around here. This is a tall, skinny Buddha, and he was covered with many colors and had been painted to a perfection. It was an utter work of art. And next to him was another uh, similar statue of Buddha, except this one, uh, also made of clay, was not yet finished. It wasn't painted yet. He was formed, and, and you could see the structure, the, the sculpture, but he was not yet painted. And then the third one was the mud out of which they were going to make the third idol to their god. I thought when I saw that, what an exciting thing it was for me to have been able to travel to China and to go to the uh, farthest reaches of the earth that God allowed me to go to and not have to preach a God made of clay or a statue painted by human hands. But to have the honor and privilege of going to the world and preaching a God who is alive, a God who is uh, able to hear and answer prayer. Someone should say amen tonight. Our God is not a God made by human hands. And so we see tonight the, the great invitation of this psalm to consider what it is to visit the house of the Lord. One of the other places that I have visited, of course, I have seen the pyramids and uh, some of the temples in Egypt to gods uh, so-called of the Egyptians. But perhaps the highlight of all of those has been visiting the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and rising up to this place upon which Solomon's temple was built and uh, which today hosts the Dome of the Rock, a mosque 
for the Islamic faith, but which someday will host the temple uh, of the Jews, the third temple into which the Messiah will come and sit and reign in authority and power. And to ascend to the temple mount and to think that God said, this is the place where I will make my name to dwell. This is the place where I will meet with my people. The place where I will be invoked by Israel. The place where I will be invoked by the priest. And, and we know today that the Temple Mount is no longer the place or exclusively of meeting with God. For you and I, the Bible says, are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we meet with God wherever we are. We can build a sanctuary to the living God. Say amen, somebody. And so... If you could imagine the Temple Mount in all of its glory and splendor, uh, although uh, it is uh, run over today by the Gentiles, it's still a place of extraordinary significance. And if you could imagine that place in the time of the writing of this psalm, this psalm written by Asaph, and you, you can uh, get the context of the history of this moment, and you see in the middle of that this man named Asaph, who's having a bad day. Have you ever had a bad day? Oh, half of you have never had a bad day. I am jealous of you tonight. Have you ever had a bad day? Asaph is having a bad day. It's so bad, he decided to write about it. That's when you know you had a bad day. You should be careful when you start writing about your bad day, right? Especially when you do that, don't hit sand. All right, whatever you do, don't hit sand. Asaph starts writing about it and he starts telling us that he is disappointed. He says in the climax of his argument in verse 13, Surely in vain have I served the Lord. Why was Asaph saying these words? He looked around him and he saw the difficulty and he saw the earnestness with which the believer had to serve God and, and saying no to sin and yes to righteousness and, and saying yes to God's will and no to rebellion. And then he says, but then I looked around and I saw the wicked and the wicked were not serving God. They were not living according to the will of God. They had no interest in God and yet they seemed to prosper. They seem to be blessed. They, they drive a nicer car than I drive. They live in a bigger house than I live in. They get the job that I wanted. They seem to have all that they want. And, and then instead of going to the house of God to worship, they are in their parties and their revelries. And it seems as though it is a waste of time to serve God. See, friends, there's always a danger that we find here in the psalm in our life as well, the danger of comparison, the, the danger of looking around and comparing ourselves and our need and our place to somebody else. And maybe today the, the danger in which you find yourself is not the comparison between the prosperity of the wicked and the apparent difficulty of the righteous, but maybe it's the comparison in other places of your life where you look around and when you, when you draw the comparison, you're disappointed by what you see. And maybe like Asaph, you've been tempted to say, in vain do I serve the Lord. Why do I pray? Why do I read my Bible? Why do I go to church? 
Why do I stay away from the path of unrighteousness? If it's going to be harder to live for God than it is to live the easy way of the world. For surely the Bible says that there is a way that seems right to a man. It's an easy way. It's a broad way. It's a permissive way. But the end of it is death and destruction. Maybe you look around and you see, God, I don't get it. I don't think you're fair. I don't think you're fair with me. That guy just got saved. And they're already getting all their answers to prayer. I've been saved for 20 years and I'm not seeing nothing. It's getting quiet in here tonight. I think I struck the chord. God, where is the justice due me? Where is the, where is the fulfillment of your promise in my life and to my life? And this can go on and on and on and on and on. If you're not careful, even the believer can get lost in this, in this complaint before the Almighty God. And God being merciful to us will listen for a while and he'll listen for a time. But you see, this can be so, uh, so costly to us. It costs you time. It costs you faith. It costs you progress to spend your time thinking like Asaph, in vain have I served the Lord. Listen to what he says. He says in verse 13, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. Why, God, have I kept my heart pure? And why have I lived the righteous life? And yet the, the wicked who are not pure seem to prosper. And he says, I have washed my hands of innocence. I, I have lived a life where when I sinned, I repented quickly before God. And he, he says, I have done the things that you told me to do. I imagine that, that Mary and Martha felt like Asaph when they sent a message to Jesus in the Gospel of John. And they earnestly besought his presence, saying, Come, because Lazarus is gravely ill. And I imagine that when they sent that message, they expected Jesus to come running to their aid, to come quickly to their side. But then the Bible tells us he didn't come, and Lazarus died. And I imagine Mary and Martha standing at the graveside of Lazarus having wrapped his body in grave clothes and having, having walked with his, with his casket or his, with, the, with his pallbearers to the grave and having laid him in that tomb, I imagine Mary and Martha saying, in vain have we served the Lord. It's not fair. This can't be right. Where's God in this? Where is the Lord? We did everything right. We prayed. That's what the preacher said you're supposed to do. You're supposed to pray. We asked God's presence. That's what you're supposed to do. We asked God's presence. But God did not show up. Jesus did not come. In vain do we serve the Lord. Now Asaph went on and on like this for quite some time. Have you ever had a pity party? Bad days and pity parties tend to go together. They always schedule together. A bad day becomes a pity party. 
And Asaph is having this pity party as he looks through the world around him and the disappointments that he feels. But then the Bible says in verse 17, until. Somebody say until. You see, nothing changes in your life or in your thinking until. Everything goes the same way. It, 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 it tends or trends in the same direction until something changes in your perspective. And here you have the psalmist saying, uh, this was how I thought, this is how I felt until I entered the sanctuary of God. David said, or Asaph was saying, I felt like I, had, like I had been wasting my time. I felt like God was unfair. I felt as though the wicked would prosper forever until I entered into the sanctuary of God. Imagine that Asaph went to work that day at the house of God. And as he ascended the temple mount, and his eyes were raised up to the house of the living God, this place upon which God had put his name, this place upon which the fire of God had fallen in order to consume the altar dedicated by Solomon, this place which had been so full of the glory of God that the priests could not bear to walk within it, this place which the queen of Sheba came to look at and behold, as he went up to the house of God and he saw the temple mount and he saw the architecture of that, of that beautiful edifice and he saw that place designed by God himself. He saw the outer court, the altar and the laver and then he saw in his mind the inner court and the lampstand and the table of shewbread and the, ta and, the, and the altar of incense. And then he saw the Holy of Holies. And within it, the Ark of the Covenant of the Living God. And when all of this perspective was given to his mind, his mind began to change. And he began to realize that God was bigger than his problem. And God was bigger than his perspective until he came into the sanctuary of God. How many times have you been having a bad day or a bad week or a bad month until you came into the house of the Lord? Until you came into the presence of God. Oh, friends, there's something about the presence of God that changes everything. You see, it's the presence of God that makes a difference. It's not three Buddhas made of clay. It's not great pyramids that no one can describe how they were built. It's not even the, the stones laid by Solomon. It's the presence of God that makes the difference. It's the presence of God that begins to change the perspective in your life. When you come into the presence of God, the first thing you receive is insight. You begin to see as God sees. You begin to perceive as God sees things in your life. That is what most often is lacking in the life of a person who is 
feeling like there is, it is in vain to serve God. They don't have insight. They don't have revelation about what it means to serve God. They don't have revelation about what it means to walk with God. When you come into his presence, your eyes are open. You get insight. You begin to, to see the possibilities of things. You begin to realize that what looked impossible is absolutely possible with God. What, what looked like it could never be becomes available to you because you receive insight in the presence of God. You receive insight about sin. When you come into the presence of God, you start to see the sin in your life. There is a conviction that comes over our life about sin when we come into the presence of God. And then there's a, a insight about the, the power of God and the ability of God to take that sin and to wash it away and to cleanse it and to make you new. And then you get not only insight but perspective when you come into the presence of God. There's a great thing that happens. That is that you gain perspective. Things start to fit into their place. Everybody could use a little perspective every now and then. Say amen, somebody. He gets a perspective and he says in verse 18, Surely the wicked are on slippery places. Listen. He says, I'm trying to live right. I'm walking with God. And I'm doing so with difficulty. The wicked seems to be prospering, but in fact, they are walking on slippery places. And sooner or later, their feet will give way. Sooner or later, they're going to, they're going to find that step they can't maneuver their way out of. They're going to hit that pothole that's going to bring wreckage and ruin to their life. But oh, not for me. Because even though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. And when I come to the slippery place, he holds my hand. And when I come against the pothole, he is my defense and my deliverer. And when I find myself surrounded by the adversary, he is my protector, my protector, and my protection. Surely I have a God who walks beside me. They seem to prosper, but they walk alone. They walk without hope of a God to help. But you and I, we walk in secure places. He gains a perspective about the presence of God. In verse 23, he says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. He says, God is always with me. I want you to say that with me tonight. God is always with me. That's not a quaint little truth. That's not a bumper sticker. That is the most profound reality you and I could ever have. God is always with me. Listen, God doesn't take a break. Say amen, somebody. Some Christians, they take breaks on God. But God doesn't take a break. The Bible said that he that keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. 
God does not take a nap. He does not need to rest tonight. In fact, tonight while you are sleeping in your bed, God will be working out the details of your life, answering your prayers, bringing blessing into your life, because that's the kind of God that we serve. God is always with me. No place you can go where God is not with you. You see, when you have that perspective, you don't even, you don't even care about the wicked. Let them prosper. God is with me. If God is with me, I don't lack anything. If God is with me and I'm hungry, he feeds me. If I'm thirsty, he gives me a drink. If I'm sick, he heals me. If I'm lonely, he is my companion and fellowship. If I am broken, he mends me. If I am down, he lifts me up. Come on, somebody. God is always with me, and God is everything that I need. He is my ever and abundant supply. And then he says again in verse 23, you have taken hold of my right hand. He takes us there to the picture of a father holding the child's hand as they walk through dangerous places. And he says, not only is God with me, but he is a father to me. He is, he is a caring and loving, compassionate father to me. He's taken me by my right hand. He will not let me fall. There's a song we sing here that was written by the praise team. It says, when I praise him, change comes. Things happen because God will not let me fall. He will not let me go. I don't care how old you get. God will not let you go. I don't care how, how de desperate your situation may be. God will not let you go. And I don't care how deep your sin may have been. God will not let you go. He is holding you by the hand. Somebody ought to give God praise tonight because he is the ever-present help in the time of trouble. Listen. Listen what it says. He has taken hold of my right hand. If you've ever held the hand of a child, there's two ways you hold the hand of a child. You either let the, the child hold your hand or you hold the child's hand. All the mamas in here know what I'm talking about. If the child holds your hand, when they decide to let go, you lose the child. Right? And there are a lot of Christians who want to hold God's finger. But then they let go because they saw a shiny object. They saw the toy aisle. Have you ever seen the look on a child when they realize they're lost? The terror that comes over them because they let go. But the Bible doesn't say that I have taken hold of God's hand. What does it say? It says, he has taken hold of my hand. Now, when, when daddy has his child's hand, the child can push, pull. He's not going to go. He can try to get away. He's not going to go. David, uh, Asaph says, the Lord has taken hold of my right hand. 
And when I have tried to get away, he pulled me back. When I tried to run, he pulled me back. When I stumbled, he raised me up. Come on, somebody. Our God has taken hold of our hand. Somebody ought to give God praise because you have a father tonight. You have a father that cares and that loves. Then he says in verse 24, with your counsel, you guide me. He says, I got perspective in God's presence because I got advice and counsel from the Lord. When you're in the presence of God, you hear the voice of God. Don't ever take that for granted. The voice of God is the, the, the gift of God to the believer. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And another they will not follow. This voice is your guide, your counsel. And so when you get into a place of difficulty and trial, you're not alone. Seek the presence of God and you will find the counsel of God. One of my favorite things to do is just to come in here and pray by myself, especially at night. Pastor, that's scary. It's only scary if you're not saved. I'll generally come in, have one light on, kneel here in prayer. Sometimes I lay prostrate on the floor. One occasion, we had we were remodeling the church, and I had I had told the church we're going to remodel in six weeks. All the carpenters said, can't be done. It's impossible. It's going to happen. We're going to remodel the church in six weeks. And it was a $50,000 project. We started raising the money. Many of you were part of that. And when we raised, we received the first offering. We raised $16,000 without a single chicken dinner in the first offering. You guys remember that? I said, I don't. I don't want you to give $1 more or $1 less than the Holy Spirit tells you. Everybody, pray about what you should give. And when they told me how much was in that first offering, I jumped about three feet. I never received an offering that, that big. And in six weeks, we remodeled the church and paid it cash because of God's goodness to his people. That meant somebody. But, you know, the devil's never far behind. Oh, that devil. He likes to show up and wag his tongue. He likes to talk. Who do you think you are? You just got here. And you already remodeled the church. And, and there's churches that can't even get the light bill paid. What does that have to do with me? I don't know. But he was, he was talking Along those lines. Accusing me. And, and the accusation was easy enough to dismiss. But it was so continual. It started getting into my head. And so uh, it was the night before Palm Sunday 2014. And the only thing we had not brought in yet was the pulpit. So the pulpit was in my office. I loaded it up. And this is a heavy pulpit. I loaded it up by myself on a dolly. Wheeled it out here. Hoisted it up into this location. I prayed over it, one, one light on the sanctuary, 
And I dedicated it to God, and then I knelt down right there, and I started to pray, and I said, Lord, the devil's been accusing me in this way. He has no right or reason to do so, and worse yet, I have no reason to listen to him, but this is getting to me, so I'm just giving it to you. I'm thanking you for your blessings upon this congregation. I know this is your doing, and I, when I ended praying, I sat down right here on the step, and I began to sing. And I just started to sing the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. When I got to the second verse, summer and winter, springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. When I got to that phrase, summer and winter, springtime and harvest, God spoke. And he said to me, Isaac, anyone who wants your spring must first endure your winter. And I knew what God was saying because I had just gone through uh, with my, uh, along with my family a dark winter, the loss of my mother. And we had experienced the gravity of that situation and prior to that, this church had gone through a great winter in the loss of its pastor. And prior to that, a, a division that took place among it some 10 years before. And the, the effects of that winter were still in the house. But God was moving those things out. And now the winter had passed. And the spring had come. And with the spring had come the blossom of a new thing. And a harvest of God's blessing. Can I just tell you tonight that maybe you're going through a winter in the soul. But no winter ever lasted forever. There's a springtime coming to the household of faith. God said anyone who wants your spring must first endure your winter. Don't ever covet someone's spring unless you want to endure their winters too. You might look at God's blessing on someone, but you don't know. You don't know the cost of that season. It's taking me a long time to tell you what he said, but it usually comes just like that. The second thing he said was, he said, first, anyone who wants your spring must first endure your winter. And then the second thing he said was, when I give you favor, wear it. Yes, sir. Don't be ashamed of my favor. Come on, somebody. You don't have to hide God's favor. You don't have to hide God's blessing. Don't be ashamed of God's favor. Wear it. You are the child of the living God. He has set his affection upon you. Come on, somebody. He has, he has surrounded you with favor like a shield. And then the last thing he said, he said, he said was a question. So that I could reflect upon what had happened. Because often when I, when I do things, I, I do them because I sense God has told me to do them. But I don't know why. And I've taught you that you never do it because you know why. If you wait to know why, you'll never do it. You've got to obey first and understand later. And so I received understanding as the Lord gave me this question he said, look at what you've done. And I know what he meant by that. 
the primary responsibility God gave me when I came to Kingsway Church was to restore the Lordship of Christ to this church. Oh, you say, well, Jesus was Lord. Yes, he's Lord as we say he's Lord, but often there are little areas where he's not Lord. There are areas where tradition is Lord or where people are Lord. And I remember in that early season, there were rooms, they were locked, that belonged to people in the house of God. They belonged to individual people. And Jesus was not Lord of the room. When he asked me, he said, look at what you've done. He was telling me, you've restored my lordship to this house. And that's why I'm blessing it. That's why I can tell you with confidence that when you make Jesus Lord of every area of your life, Jesus will bless every area of your life. Say amen, somebody. You make Jesus Lord of your finances, he'll bless your finances. You make him Lord of your marriage, he'll bless your marriage. You make him Lord of your job, he'll bless your job. Come on, somebody. You make Jesus Lord, and blessing can't stay away. All of that came in one moment in the presence of God. Until I entered the sanctuary. I felt the accusation of the devil. I felt the, the accusation of man. But when I came into the sanctuary, I heard the voice of God. The counsel of the Almighty came into my ear. And so tonight, I want to encourage you to go into the sanctuary of the living God. To be attuned to the voice of God and receive his counsel. For here's the last thing. That, that Asaph says that I want to mention in verse 24. He says, afterward, I will receive glory. I'm going to receive God's glory and favor on my life. It might look like the wicked have all the glory. Don't you worry about that. It's not in vain to serve the Lord. It's not in vain to keep your heart pure. It's not in vain to wash your hands in innocence. It's not in vain to say no to the world. Young man, young lady, it's not in vain to serve Jesus. God will never waste your life. But you'll never have the right perspective until you come into the sanctuary of the Lord. When you come into his house, you realize what he says in verse 25. Who have I in heaven but you? Asaph comes to this reality, God, you're everything to me. You're everything. You're my day and my night. You're my song and my sermon. You are my friend and my father. You are the provision of everything in my life. You are everything to me. 
You see, you can't get that perspective in the dance hall. You can't get that perspective because, you see, God is everything to everybody, but not everybody knows him that way because not everybody comes into the sanctuary. But when you come into the sanctuary and you behold the glory of his face and the beauty of his holiness, you realize, who have I in heaven but you? You are everything to me. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the beginning and the end. You are the first and the last. You are the fairest of 10,000. You are the bright and morning star. You are the lily of the valley, the rose of Sharon, the precious fragrance of the valley full of, of the garden. You are the wellspring of life in the wilderness. You are everything to me. Oh, what a joy to walk with God. To know his voice. He says, whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides you, I desire nothing. What else could you want? When you have God, friend, you have it all. When you have God, you have everything. If you don't have God, you don't have anything. Nothing will change in your life until you come into the sanctuary of the Lord. Would you stand with me tonight? Let's come into this altar. Come into the sanctuary. Come and behold the glory of the Lord. Just come worship him. You don't have to ask for anything. Just come worship him. Come and make an altar right here in this house. Just build an altar to the living God. Who have I in heaven but thee? I desire nothing on the earth. 